My favorite time of the weekday when I get to come at you here from 4 to 5 on ESPN-UP. It is a sports pen. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along as always. We kick off another week and we do so with some football talk. We got an MLB inbox coming up. Everyone has played one preseason game now. Officially one preseason week down. What have we learned? Preseason as a whole. Are there going to be changes coming to that? Plus, Antonio Brown, you haven't heard enough of that. i got some thoughts on Antonio Brown I'm going to share with you here in just a few moments. All that and more coming up over the course of the next hour here on ESPN-UP. By the way, if you missed the first airing of our Marquette County High School football kickoff show on Saturday, you have another chance. You can hear it again tomorrow night, 7 Eastern, 6 Central, right here on ESPN-UP and online with our app. If you don't want to wait or you missed your favorite segment from Saturday, you can go back and listen right now. But don't do it right now. Wait till the end of the sports pen, and then go back and listen. You can do so on demand. The Marquette County High School kickoff show is on demand with our free mobile app, which, again, you can get from the Apple I Store or Google Play. Just look up ESPN-UP. Well, I tell you what, right after we signed off on Friday... The news broke that Antonio Brown does not want to wear the new NFL-sanctioned helmet. You know what this reminds me of? He reminds me of Harrison Ford a little bit. Remember about five years or so ago? It might have been a little longer than that. Harrison Ford was flying one of those older, dangerous planes. He crashed it. Thankfully, he was all right because Harrison Ford is one of my favorite actors. But he doesn't like the new safe planes. He wants something old and dangerous, extreme. It's what kind of reminds me of Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown does not want to wear the NFL's new helmet. Instead, he wants to stick with the shut air advantage helmet. That's what he wore throughout his career with Pittsburgh. He is threatening retirement if he doesn't get his way. I'm going to say the obvious. Antonio Brown is nuts. Like, he's not just a diva. I keep seeing Antonio Brown as a diva. I don't think so. I think it's time to take a check under the hood. Antonio Brown is showing signs of some kind of mental health issue. I'm not saying that in a derogatory way, but does he not show symptoms of being something like bipolar? Something's not right with Antonio Brown. And he is doing his darndest to convince us all the problem was not Ben Roethlisberger. It wasn't the Pittsburgh Steelers. It's not John Gruden. It's not the Oakland Raiders. It's not Roger Goodell. It's not his helmet. His biggest problem is himself. Antonio Brown is Antonio Brown's worst enemy. A guy who's got Hall of Fame talent, but now he's on the wrong side of 30, dealing with frostbite in his feet, and while the Raiders are optimistic he won't miss any games, now he's threatening retirement if he doesn't get aware of his old dangerous helmet. It's not just Antonio Brown, he's just the only one threatening retirement if he doesn't get his way. Other players who don't like the new helmet include Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. All total, they are part of the 32 NFL players who don't want to switch to a new helmet this season. But Antonio Brown's the only one threatening retirement. Do we really think this is going to happen? What's a bigger bluff, Ezekiel Elliott holding out or Antonio Brown threatening retirement if he doesn't get his old helmet back? This is a guy who gave himself frostbite by walking into a cryo chamber without the right equipment on. If anybody needs his helmet, it's him! The NFL has been addressing head injuries lately. They've been high on that. That's been their hot-button issue for the last couple of years. So Antonio Brown stated that he will file a grievance against the NFL if he suffers a head injury in the league-mandated helmet. Now that's important because it makes me think this is all a bluff. Antonio Brown has a lot of reasons. In fact, 31 million reasons with an incentive to make it 60 million if he plays throughout his contract he has that many reasons not to retire. You have a chance to make $31 million this year, and that could get up to 60. That's a lot of reasons not to retire over a helmet issue. I tell you what, I get the chance to make $31 million. A lot of people get the chance to make $31 million. We're all going to wear whatever the league tells us to wear. If Tom Mogish, her general manager across the hall, told me, I'm going to increase your salary to $31 million. After I wake up from them rubbing smelling salts under my nose, I'm going to say, wow, that's amazing. And he's going to tell me, there's one stipulation. You have got to wear the jersey of your least favorite professional athlete every day. Got to come to the office in a Tom Wilson Washington Capitals jersey. Maybe Yasiel Puig. I don't like him either. 
If I had to do that to make $31 million, I'd probably hate myself. I'd probably feel shame, but I'd probably do it. I would not necessarily be happy about it, but man, that's $31 million. All you got to do is wear a helmet and play football. A helmet that's designed to keep you safer than your old one. Why is this a problem? And I tell you what, I'm not even confident this is a bluff. I think it is, but I'm not confident in it. Because logically, Antonio Brown is not going to retire over a football helmet. But Antonio Brown is very much the person who does not do the logical thing over and over and over again. How many times has there been an obvious, clear-cut choice, things Antonio Brown should or shouldn't do, and he picks the wrong one? Antonio Brown is acting erratic. If doctors ever find traces of some kind of bipolar disorder with Antonio Brown, it would be the least shocking news I've ever reported on this show. He is erratic. This erratic behavior he's developed over the last couple of years, it's not normal. It wasn't even normal for him early in his career, back in his 20s. The blonde mustache, taking videos of himself on the treadmill, calling himself Mr. Big Chest, the cryogenic chamber, and now threatening to retire over a helmet? His livelihood when he's on pace to be an NFL Hall of Famer? Something's not right with Antonio Brown. Oh, don't forget his birthday messages, those video messages. I still love that clip. It's one of my favorite of all time. Here it is again. Happy 38th birthday. And I hear it's your second anniversary wedding. I hear you've been working really hard as a defense attorney. And your birthday is here. Happy birthday. We celebrate you today. Hope your birthday is booming. As much as I love to harp on Antonio Brown, as much as the sports media as a whole likes to rip on this guy, we all love him for giving us that golden nugget right there. One of my favorite clips of all time. But I tell you what, Dan Orlovsky had some thoughts on Antonio Brown this weekend. Lions fans, you remember Dan Orlovsky? was a quarterback during that 0-16 season back in 2008. Good news for you, he is a much better NFL analyst than he is a quarterback. He's one of my favorite analysts here at ESPN, and he went off this weekend on all kinds of subjects from Antonio Brown to the NFL preseason, and he nailed every one of them. So I've got a lot of Dan Orlovsky audio I want to play for you here before we get to the break, including this, his thoughts on Antonio Brown. I'd keep it very simple, like grow up. You know, I've got seven-year-old kids to it that I have to uh, kind of talk that way to at times. You know, I understand guys are very territorial to their superstitions or equipment or whatnot, but I played on a bunch of different teams. And these equipment staffs go out of their way to make sure that you're comfortable and how can we help you and make sure specifications are the way that you want. And at some point, you just I, I would look at the guy and be like, dude, choose the hill that you want to die on because this is not it. And there's plenty of options at the end of the day. You trying to continue to, to fight this fight is like trying to use Instagram on a flip phone. It just doesn't work that way anymore. So grow up, dude. That's NFL insider Dan Orlovsky on Dorian Mel this weekend. And again, Dan was just on fire this weekend. I loved his comments on the NFL preseason. Now, here's the debate. The NFL preseason is at four games for each team and then a 16-game regular season. There has been talk of switching to the Canadian model, two preseason games, and making the regular season 18 games long. Dan Orlovsky is part of the contingent that believes that the NFL preseason is too long. I'm not saying he's necessarily an advocate of the two preseason 18 regular season game model, but the NFL preseason in its current form is unnecessarily long. And Dan got into it with NFL insider Ben Hartsack this weekend. Dan is in favor of changing it, reducing it, and Ben is in favor of keeping it as it is. And I'll tell you what, I don't necessarily disagree with what Ben Hartsack says. I'm going to play both audio clips for you. But I love what Dan Orlovsky says. For me, Dan Orlovsky won this debate. Let's start with Dan's argument why the NFL preseason needs to be reduced. The NFL is still, in, in some ways, and I, I think it's an incredible league, but it still, in some ways, is archaic. We have to go back with, okay, we've got four preseason, preseason games because long time ago there was no such thing as OTAs and off-season training and mandatory mini camps. Nowadays, guys don't even get out of shape. They don't need the five-week-long training camp, and they don't need the four games to get themselves acclimated to football and being in football shape. But the fact that they have four preseason games, like the, 
you watch the first 10 minutes, and then after that, it's like, I'm good. And so yeah, they need to get up to date with that. Baseball often gets called a sport that clings to tradition, oftentimes to its own detriment. Football is very much embodying that in the way they view the preseason. It's not 1975 anymore. Dan Orlovsky is absolutely right. There is year-round training for these guys because the NFL has gotten so much more competitive. You are not going to keep your job if you aren't keeping yourself in shape throughout the entire year. And because the culture of off-season training has changed, the preseason needs to change with it. And I loved what he said about you watch the first 10 minutes of preseason, you see the starters come in, that's pretty much all you need. That's pretty much all you care to watch. Man, he just hit it with the zingers. I loved his Instagram on a flip phone comment earlier, if you caught that. You know what I love about his argument? He didn't use the tired old rhetoric of you're giving players more opportunities to get hurt by sending them out there for four games instead of two. We all know that. That's obvious. He talked about the training aspect, the off-season workouts, staying in shape, because if you don't, some guy is going to come up off the practice squad and take your job. I love that argument from Dan Orlovsky. Ben Hartsock replied with this, stating his case that the preseason is necessary for those guys fighting to make the 53-man roster. You have to recognize where we are in the state of like the marriage of college to the NFL. There is the 20-hour the rule at the college level has greatly impacted development of a few key positions. One is offensive line, and two is the quarterback position. Every year after the draft, we th- we're talking about offensive linemen that have to learn how to get into a three-point stance. We're talking about quarterbacks that have to learn how to call a play from the huddle. And now, under the, the current collective bargaining agreement, there have been great reductions in the amount of on-field practice time that young players get. See, I don't necessarily disagree with what Ben Hartsek said there. But it's an argument based around a solution that would be a simple fix for the NFL. If the NFL wants to invest in on-field practice time more than the preseason, they can do that. They're the governing body. They have the power to do that. They can put more focus and more time into OTAs, mini camps, even joint practices than they can with the preseason if they choose to. Because what do you think helps more? Do you think that a young player gets more out of an OTA camp or out of a preseason game? At a lot of positions, it's probably not the preseason game. I would say the only position group, a young player benefiting from playing in a preseason game, is quarterback. Because you see a live-action defense, you're not wearing that red jersey. Quarterback is the only young position group, in my mind, that benefits more from preseason than from OTAs. And Ben Hartsock, if he was sitting right across from me, we were debating here in studio, he would say, well, quarterback's the most important position in football. And while I agree, do you need to send a guy like Daniel Jones, Kyler Murray, Dwayne Haskins out for four preseason games? Or can they get enough in two? Because they're not playing the majority of these preseason games either. A lot of these guys are too valuable for the regular season. They're not going to risk them in the preseason. Haskins and Murray are both projected starters this year. Daniel Jones is the one most likely to take the most snaps in preseason because he's not supposed to be a starter this year, and yet he didn't play all that much against the Jets. Alex Tanney was the one who went 14 for 19. He had the best quarterback numbers for the Giants during their preseason game against the Jets. I agree that you need preseason, you need live action, but you don't need four games. You can do it in two. That is the smart model for the NFL. But they're clinging to tradition rather than focusing on what's best for player development. Let's take our first time out when we come back. I did an MLB inbox this weekend. I'll answer your questions and address your takes next on ESPN UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN UP and on the ESPN UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN UP. Tanner Hoops, glad to be with you on this Monday afternoon. We are going to get to our MLB inbox in a second. As always, if you have a take, if you have something you want addressed here on the Sports Pen, shoot us a message. You can always get in touch with us via our social media. Shoot us a message on Facebook. We'll address it here in the Sports Pen. I tell you what, ESPN nationally has something new regarding fan interaction. I'm going to get to that here before we get to our MLB inbox. I was on a conference call last week with ESPN HQ in Bristol. 
They had a conference call with all 250-something ESPN affiliates, talked about some new ways we can get our listeners engaged. ESPN would like me to inform you that any time you dial ESPN's call-in number and you leave them a voicemail, they are going to be putting more of those on the air and using them for live content during shows or commercials, what have you. You can do that. If you can't get through to ESPN, you can always get through to us. Call our hotline number. If I'm not around, leave us a voicemail. And we can play that back on the show. We can address whatever take you have, whatever questions you want answered. We want to interact with our fans here at ESPN and at ESPN-UP. Again, the call-in number is always 906-226-4570. Get a hold of me. Get a hold of our voicemail. Leave us a message, and we'll be sure to address whatever you have coming up. Maybe even play it back on air. We're doing a lot more to get our fans engaged here at ESPN Radio, whether it's at the highest level in Bristol, Connecticut, or it's here in Marquette, Michigan. We are here to serve you, the fans. And I tell you what. I've been doing a little bit of that this weekend with our MLB inbox. Got a few messages online that I want to address. Got some questions from some listeners, some takes, what have you. And pulling up the inbox. First question, who's this year's MVP? Well, we talked about it on the show a little bit last week with Ryan Stieg. There are two consensus frontrunners in the National League and just one in the American League. Mike Trout is going to win it again in the American League. DJ LeMayhew is going to be the only one who even comes close, but he's still not going to get it. In the National League, we have a race. We have Cody Bellinger and Christian Yelich. And as we said on the show last week, I think it's going to be Bellinger. If the season ended right now, I think Bellinger would get it. For one, it's awfully tough to repeat his MVP. And I'm not saying Yelly hasn't put up the numbers to deserve it. But Bellinger's team is much better this year. His numbers are fairly similar to Yelich's. You could go either way with that choice, Yelich or Bellinger, and you wouldn't be wrong. But I believe the Dodgers' success as a team, compared to where the Brewers are at right now, that will be the tiebreaker in the NL MVP race. Should it be? I don't know. Morally, ethically, is that the way you should decide who's the most valuable player? I don't know. That's a different conversation. But that's what I think is going to happen. I suspect that Cody Bellinger is going to win NL MVP unless there's a massive drop-off of some sort here in the final 40-something games. And then you'll have guys like Ronald Acuna, Nolan Arenado, Freddie Freeman. They'll always be in the conversation. But it's one thing to be in the conversation and to be an actual candidate. And right now, there are two actual candidates for MVP in the National League. Cody Bellinger. Is my pick as of right now for the NL MVP. Mike Trout will repeat in the AL. Second question, our MLB inbox. And I got a feeling I know who this one is from. I believe it's from my good friend Peter listening out in Boston. Will the Red Sox make a charge for the playoffs? And I can't say for certain who sent in this question. It came from an anonymous app, but how many Red Sox fans do I know? How many Red Sox fans listen to this show? So I tell you what, will the Red Sox make a charge of the playoffs was the question. In the American League, there are four locks. The Yankees, the Astros, the Twins, and the Indians. So who's going to get that fifth spot? Who is going to go on the road for the AL wildcard game? For Boston, that's best-case scenario. They're 16 games out of first place in the AL East with 40-something to go. They're not going to catch the Yankees. As we sit here today, Monday afternoon, Boston is seven and a half games out of a playoff spot. They trail the Tampa Rays by seven and a half games with a record of 62 and 58. Now, here's a few things to factor in with the Red Sox. Dave Dombrowski got his fans' hopes up, thinking that they were going to go out and make a trade at the deadline, compete to repeat as World Series champions. They didn't do anything. They sat on their hands much like the Yankees. Unfortunately for them, the Red Sox are not in the position standings-wise that the Yankees are in. That was a huge failure on trade deadline day. The good news for Boston, Xander Bogarts has been playing terrific baseball. You could make the argument that he could finish as the AL MVP runner-up to Mike Trout. If he continues on this hot trend, maybe. Maybe there's some light for Boston at the end of the tunnel. I'll say this. Right now, the Tampa Rays occupy that fifth and final American League playoff spot. I don't think they're going to get in. I don't. I don't think they have a good enough team down the stretch. They couldn't make any moves at the trade deadline because they don't have the money. They have the worst payroll in all Major League Baseball. They're stuck with the team they have right now. And that team, it's above average, but it's not that good. It's not playoff good in my mind. I don't see Tampa getting into the playoffs. At some point, the roster is going to be exposed for what it is. Right now, it's the Kevin Kiermeyer show. 
Last year, despite Blake Snell having a Cy Young caliber season, Tampa would fall short. Now Tampa is winning in spite of Blake Snell. There are too many teams chasing him with far better rosters for Tampa Bay that they are just not going to get in when it's all said and done. So really, if Boston is going to make a run, they can do it. But their biggest threat will be Oakland, not Tampa Bay. Oakland is the team separating the Red Sox and Rays in the standings. They are a game and a half out of the wild card, sitting with a record of 67-51. and 51. Oakland has a good enough roster. They could get into the postseason. I think it's down to Oakland and Boston. I don't think Tampa Bay is going to get in. And then there's Texas nine games out would be the closest team behind Boston. I don't think they're going to get in. So does Boston have a chance? Yes, that offense needs to pick up, and Boston needs at least one more strong run in them. One more winning streak of at least five games or so, and they're going to need Oakland to hit the skids at some point. Boston's got to turn it around. They just dropped a series to the Angels, and the schedule doesn't get easier. They open up a series at Cleveland tonight. Cleveland's the hottest team in the American League. Plus, you've still got East matchups with the Rays, with the Yankees. It's going to be an uphill climb for Boston. I'm not ready to say that they're out of it. But as of right now, I can't say that I would pick them to get in there. Do I doubt that they could? Absolutely not. I totally think Boston could make a run and get into the postseason. They have a good enough roster to do that. They've got all the talent back from last year's World Series team. Can they do it? Yes, they can. Will they? Whole different question. That World Series hangover has been real in Fenway, but there's absolutely no way I'm going to count the Red Sox out. Who do I think is going to win the National League Central? I joke, don't ask me questions about the NL Central because I don't know what's going on there anymore. Nobody seems to. The Cubs are leading that division, but they're trying their darndest to give it up, it seems like. They did bounce back with a nice win yesterday. You have the Cardinals two back, the Brewers two and a half back, Cincinnati has somehow joined the fracas again, and then Pittsburgh, the bottom has absolutely fallen out since the All-Star break. I tell you what, if I had to pick... Right now, I would probably say the Cubs. And this is the first time I can admit that I'm not confident the Brewers will finish ahead of the Cubs this year. Up until now, I really thought that. But Milwaukee is not playing consistent enough baseball. They're not getting enough in their starting pitching. They lost again yesterday. Right now, they're just not acting like they want it. I thought after coming up a game short of the World Series last year, Milwaukee would be all in on getting to the big stage this year. I thought that would motivate them on the field, in the front office, and it hasn't. They sit 62-57. and If there's any team that seems like they want to win that division more than all the others, it's probably Cincinnati. Cincinnati is playing the most inspired baseball of any of the five teams in that NL Central division, and there's still four games under five hundred. I still don't think they're going to do it. Yet somebody has just got to step up and take control of that division. It's there for the taking. Some team is just one hot streak away from taking command of that division. And it might be the Brewers. The Brewers still might have a shot at it. But someone is going to need to step up and rip off five straight wins, have a week or so where they just can't be touched, go like 8-2 and two on a homestand or something like that. Whoever can do that is probably going to win the Central. I have no clue as to which team that'll be, though. Right now, for lack of a better answer, I probably have to say the Cubs. The National League wildcard race. My thoughts on that. Well, I tell you what, it is absolutely nuts. Here's the playoff pitcher in the National League as it stands right now. The Dodgers, Braves, and Cubs would all win their division. The two National League spots are occupied by Washington at 62-55 and 55, and St. Louis at 61-55. and 55. Then you've got the Brewers half a game out. You've got the Mets one out, the Phils two, the Diamondbacks three, and the Giants three and a half. You can throw in the Reds at five games back if you really want to. So you've got eight teams in the wildcard race that are separated by six games. This NL wildcard race is going to be absolutely nuts. I tell you what, this is harder to predict than the NL Central. It really is. I think we can go through this list. The best way to do it is through process of elimination. I don't think Cincinnati's a playoff team. I don't think San Fran is a playoff team. In fact, they're probably going to be the team that's going to come to regret not selling at the deadline more than anybody else. I don't think Arizona's a playoff team. I think they're about a 500 team. That won't be enough to win this wildcard race. The teams in wildcard position right now that have a chance, in my mind, are Washington, St. Louis, Milwaukee, the Mets, and Philadelphia. 
by all logic, Philadelphia should be a wildcard team, and Washington shouldn't. I still can't figure that out. I didn't have high hopes for Washington this year, yet they've played well. Philadelphia's a team that you can make the argument won the offseason. I'm not talking about Bryce Harper. He's part of it. Sure, he's a great baseball player, but I'm talking about going out and getting guys like JT Real Mudo, Andrew McCutcheon. Even though he's hurt, he was a big signing. They had a really good offseason this year, and that should translate to a better record than 60-58. and 58. Their offense has hit rock bottom, and that was supposed to be the strength of that team. I think potential-wise, Philadelphia has the best roster of that group when you factor in pitching and offense. St. Louis sometimes has the offense. Rarely, though, do they have the starting pitching. Milwaukee, they tried to address that starting rotation. They didn't do enough, in my opinion. Their offense is fine. But they need more pitching. The Mets, man, they're just going to met at some point, aren't they? They have a good enough roster. Logically, they should be in. But you know they're just going to mess it up some way, somehow. Mets are going to met. I could sit here and tell you logically what makes sense, what should happen in the NL wildcard pitcher. But the truth is, I don't have a clue. Nobody does. That's the beauty of baseball. That's why this race is so much fun. I'm not going to give you an answer, and I'm not going to go on record with any kind of take right now. Because there is way too much that could happen. I know that's the weak way out, but from a journalistic standpoint, I respect my listeners enough to be honest with them rather than give them some fluff. We owe you another timeout. When we come back, we'll take a look at On This Day in Sports History plus a few sports birthdays we want to recognize. We'll do so next here on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along as always. Here's your Sports Center update. Roberto Luongo will become the first member of the Florida Panthers to have his jersey number retired. Luongo's number one will be hung from the Raptors prior to the Panthers' matchup with the Canadians March 7th. Major League Baseball announced their 2020 regular season schedule today. Among the notable matchups include a three-game series between the Mets and Marlins at Hiram Bithorn Stadium in San Juan, Puerto Rico. The two teams met each other in Puerto Rico back in 2010. The Marlins will serve as the home team for the weekend. And finally, an Austrian man set a new world record for longest time submerged in ice this weekend. Wearing only a swimsuit, Josef Kolbert sat in a tub of ice that covered everything but his head for 2 hours, 8 minutes, and 47 seconds, breaking the previous world record by roughly 15 minutes. That is your Sports Center update. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along this Monday afternoon. I tell you what, I like to go back and look on this day in sports history. I like seeing sports anniversaries, reminiscing on things. It almost takes it back to that moment. I got a few here that I want to go back and revisit. This one before any of our time. 1851. August 12, 1851, in the first version of the America's Cup, the U.S. schooner America beat the British yacht Aurora in a race around the Isle of Wight. The Brits might have beat us as far as creativity when naming their boat, but we won the race. We'll take that. 1879, the first ever National Archery Association tournament was held in Chicago on this date in 1879. 1948, the Cleveland Indians set a major league record recording 29 hits in a nine-inning game. On this day in 1950, the first international game played by an NFL team, the New York Giants played the CFL's Ottawa Rough Riders. The Giants won that game 20-6 at Ottawa's Lansdowne Stadium. I wonder if the Giants would still be able to win. And I don't know how they work that as far as how many players can be on the field, which field size I used, but the CFL plays with 12 guys, the NFL plays with 11. That's worth looking into. 1965, the Brew Crew are going to like this. The Milwaukee Brewers Baseball Club, Inc. applied for a National League franchise. 1969, the Boston Celtics were sold for an NBA record $6 million. On this day in 1973, Jack Nicklaus won his third PGA championship. He'd later go on to win two more. A year later, Nolan Ryan struck out 19 and walked just two to help the Angels beat the Red Sox 4-2. On this day in 1984, the Braves beat the Padres 5-3. The game is notable because of the two brawls and the 19 ejections between the two teams. You think about it, you got 25 on each roster, combined 50, 19 of them get ejected. You're playing with a skeleton crew. 
1984 Major League Baseball inducted a new Hall of Fame class that included Harmon Killebrew, Rick Farrell, Don Drysdale, Pee Wee Reese, and Luis Aprecio. How about this day in 1988? The Red Sox stretched their home winning streak to an American League record 23 consecutive games with a 9-4 win over Detroit. Then in 1990, Wayne Grady of Australia won his only major title as he picked up a three-stroke victory in the PGA Championship. A couple of things happened on this day in 1994. An NFL game was aired on the Fox Television Network for the first time ever, an exhibition game between the 49ers and the Broncos. Later that day, members of the Major League Baseball Players Association went on strike. That led to the cancellation of the World Series for only the second time ever. 2007, Tiger Woods won the PGA Championship by two strokes ahead of Woody Austin. It would be his fourth major. Then in 2008, world record Michael Phelps won his third of eight gold medals at the Beijing Olympics as he took the 200-meter freestyle in a world record 1 minute 42.96 seconds. The 30th Olympic Games at London closed on this day in 2012. 2016, Katie Ledecky set her world record, 8 minutes, 4.79 seconds to dominate the women's 800-meter field at the Rio Olympics. And finally, 2017, Usain Bolt injured himself in what would be his final race. The men's 4x100-meter relay Jamaica went on to miss gold at the World Championships. What about some sports figures celebrating birthdays today? Happy birthday to Pete Sampras, the American tennis player, 14-time Grand Slam champion, born in Washington, D.C. on this day in 1971. Happy birthday. Elsewhere, happy birthday to Moses Ware, former NFL wide receiver, primarily with the Minnesota Vikings. He was born on this day in 1973. Happy birthday. Reagan Upshaw, former Tampa Bay Buccaneer defensive end on this day in 1975. A year later, Antoine Walker with the Boston Celtics. Happy birthday. Plaxico Burris turns 42 years old today. One of the biggest moments in New York Giants history. Happy birthday. Tyson Fury was born on this day in 1988. British heavyweight fighter was born in Manchester. Happy birthday. And then, of course, happy birthday to Mario Balotelli. The Italian soccer player turns 29 today. Birthday is here. Happy birthday. We celebrate you today. Hope your birthday is booming. All right. I've got 10 storylines, 10 unanswered questions, 10 anomalies that are going to be answered here in a couple of months when the NFL season comes to an end. NFL goes by quick. It really does. But it's going to give us some clarity as to what is going to happen with the following headlines. Storylines that we can watch for going into the 2019 season. Let's start here. When and where will Melvin Gordon play? No contract extension on the table. Nothing really in the works. Dan Lebitard, as he does so often here on ESPN-UP from 10 to 1, nailed it when talking about the running back holdout situation. Lebitard said that running backs in the NFL are holding out to get the kind of money in their contracts that Harrison Barnes pays in taxes. Like NFL players are looking at the NBA and they're just drooling at the contracts that they get. And the running back position where you have such a high risk of being injured within your first, what, three seasons of being in the league? Where your career doesn't have a long lifespan? You want to be locked in financially for as long as possible. Melvin Gordon and Ezekiel Elliott are trying to reset the running back financial market. Now, unlike baseball, it's a salary-capped league. Would it be more fun if it was just an open market, open forum? You could just have guys bidding for whoever you want? Well, if that were the case, then the New Yorks, the L.A.s, Chicago, Houston, those big market teams would dominate the NFL every year. The salary cap exists to provide parity. Major League Baseball doesn't have it. That's why the Yankees are perennial playoff powers every year. The salary cap exists to prevent that. Melvin Gordon's situation, however, is different than Ezekiel Elliott's with the Cowboys in the sense that there are guys that are ready to step up and take his place. The Chargers have got a good enough group of backups that everything they set out to do this year is still in front of them. Now, Super Bowl probably need Melvin Gordon for that, but I don't think they're a Super Bowl team as it is. Yet they're going to have a pretty good year. Maybe contend for that division with Austin Eckler and Justin Jackson in the backfield. Melvin Gordon, if he doesn't get a new deal, is demanding to be traded. So then you can see the market heat up for Melvin Gordon. 
Because then if L.A. doesn't want to pay for a running back, there's some team out there who will. And some team who might even want to give up a key piece the Chargers need. Now, the Chargers aren't forced to trade Melvin Gordon. That's their leverage. There's still time on his contract, much like Ezekiel Elliott. But if the Chargers find themselves in a race with the Chiefs trying to win the AFC West, or it becomes painfully apparent there's an unaddressed weakness that they feel is going to hurt their postseason chances, they may very well make a trade for Melvin Gordon because he is arguably a top-five running back that people are going to pay good money for or they're going to give up a key piece for. So yeah, you want Melvin Gordon on the field, but you've got a good backup group, and he is a great bargaining chip. So L.A., in that sense, in a really good spot. How good are the Cleveland Browns? Well, they were maybe the hottest team at the end of 2018. Maybe. Easily the hottest team that didn't make the playoffs. And then they went out and they got Odell Beckham Jr., Olivia Vernon, Sheldon Richardson, and others in this offseason. They are the sexy pick to win the AFC North, but will they? I'm still not convinced. I think the off-field drama is going to detract from the talent. Odell Beckham Jr. can't stop talking about his ex. The New York Giants. He's too obsessed with them to look forward to what he has with Cleveland. Yeah, they look good in the preseason game the other night. But again, it's preseason. Come on. Do you realize in the last 20 years, Cleveland has only won one playoff game? Kelly Holcomb was the starting quarterback. This is their best roster in almost two decades. And yet we're still not confident about Cleveland. We're not ready to go all in for them because of the locker room. What direction are the New York Giants headed in? Well, the Giants took a running back at number two overall last year. It turned out to be a great pick, one offensive rookie of the year. They took a quarterback sixth overall earlier this year with Daniel Jones. Uh, Jones probably isn't going to play all that much this year, but he did look good in his first preseason game. Almost perfect. And again, it's preseason. How much stock do you take into it? But I tell you what, I still can't believe how many people still criticize the Giants for not drafting Sam Darnold last year. I have never seen a more successful draft pick be roundly criticized and characterized as the wrong pick more than Saquon Barkley. What more could Saquon have done? Right now, he's on Hall of Fame pace. I know we've only seen one year, but if he continues on this pace, he's a Hall of Famer. I don't think it's an overreaction to say that. We're saying that about Zeke after four years, and I think Saquon is on pace to have a better career than Zeke. I tell you what, I was never high on Sam Darnold. I don't know that he'll last in this league more than five years. The Jets thought the same thing about Mark Sanchez when they took him. They thought they had their franchise quarterback of the future. They were so high on. The teams ahead of the Jets were criticized for not taking Mark Sanchez. Honestly, if you think the Giants should have taken Sam Darnold last year and they would be better off with Sam Darnold and Wayne Gallman rather than a two-time Super Bowl winning quarterback who's still serviceable and a running back who wins Offensive Rookie of the Year, both of whom are probable Hall of Famers? I don't understand how that's bad. I don't understand how the Giants messed up. To me, that's the right choice. And I tell you what, if Daniel Jones continues to impress like he did in his first preseason game, we all might owe David Gettleman an apology. I criticized David Gettleman. The Odell Beckham trade, I thought, what are you doing? But in the end, he trades a guy that was bad for the locker room, that's well on his way to turning into another Antonio Brown. And they get back a really nice safety, Jabril Peppers, who's going to be a very nice piece for them this year. Guys, Odell Beckham is on pace to be even more of a diva than Antonio Brown right now. He's going to get there quicker, and the Giants will look good for parting with him when they did. I'm starting to think we all might owe David Gilman an apology, and maybe he did have a long-term plan that might just come true. But again, we still got a ways to go before that can happen. Last one here before we hit the break, then i got a few more when we come back. Can Carson Wentz stay healthy this year? Back in 2017, he was on his way to an MVP season. Then he hurt his knee. 2018, it was his back. He had that fracture in his back. His injury issues did not stop Philadelphia from giving him a contract extension. Four years, $128 million, even though it was his backup that carried them to the playoffs both years that he went down, including a Super Bowl two years ago. Not only that, but you get the off-season distractions. Is Carson Wentz bad in a locker room? Was Carson Wentz worth the money? Is he going to pan out in the NFL? Or is he stuck in the Jimmy Garoppolo rut? You got all kinds of potential. Got a good coach, got a good team around you. But you can never stay on the field and stay healthy to see it happen. The only difference is the Eagles splurged a bunch of money on their new quarterback. 
The 49ers are still waiting to see, can Jimmy G stay healthy? Eagles didn't want to wait and see. They made the choice between a guy who led him to the playoffs twice and they sent him to Jacksonville. Instead, they go with the guy that largely hasn't proven anything. In fact, his numbers are comparable to Dak Prescott, who's being roundly ridiculed for his repertoire in comparison to Ezekiel Elliott, his teammate, two guys that are in need of new contracts. Can Carson Wentz stay healthy? I don't know. But if he has another season-ending injury, it's going to look really bad for the Philadelphia front office. It's going to be a terrible look, especially after you splurge and give him that extension. Let's take our last time out. When we come back, i got a few more of these storylines. What to watch for heading into the NFL season next on ESPN UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN UP and on the ESPN UP app. If you missed any part of the show today, you can check it out on demand with our free mobile app. Get it from the Apple I Store or Google Play. Just look up ESPN UP. Tanner Hoops with you Monday afternoon. Glad to have you along as always. We're going to get back to some storylines, what to watch for in the upcoming NFL season. But first, some things you might have missed over the weekend. First and foremost, actually this happened earlier today. Can't technically say this was a weekend thing, but you might have missed it. Jay Gruden, head coach of the Washington Redskins, say that Case Keenum and Colt McCoy both have a leg up on Dwayne Haskins in the quarterback battle. His quote was, leg up. Case Keenum and Colt McCoy right now are ahead of Dwayne Haskins on the Redskins depth chart. Somehow I don't believe that. I don't believe that a guy whose seat is starting to get hotter is going to take a quarterback 15th overall in the draft, a Heisman finalist, and is not going to play him behind Case Keenum and Colt McCoy. Somehow I don't believe that. This seems more like a motivation tactic to me. Tom Brady put his Massachusetts home on the market, valued at $39 million, tells people... Don't read too much into it. The closest home he has to Boston now is in New York City. But Tom Brady says, don't read too much into it. I'll be a free agent next year. I'll be eligible to go to a different team if I choose, but don't read too much into that. Some sad news out of the weekend. Pittsburgh Steelers wide receiver coach Daryl Drake passed away yesterday at the age of 62. He'd been a part of football for almost half his life. Meanwhile, it's been a weird special teams week for the New York Jets. They signed kicker Taylor Bertolet yesterday after Chandler Catanzaro abruptly announced his retirement. Catanzaro struggled, to say the least, in the preseason opener against the Giants on Thursday. 28 years old, he signed this offseason after splitting up with the Carolina Panthers, previously was a member of the Buccaneers and the Arizona Cardinals, where he's best remembered for missing a chip shot field goal, along with Steven Hauska. Both teams' kickers missed chip shot potential game-winning field goal in overtime as they ended up tying the Seattle Seahawks 6-6. The Arizona Cardinals have released defensive end Darius Fallon after he was arrested Friday for aggravated assault and the Buffalo Bills have signed veteran cornerback Captain Munnerlin, a 10-year veteran who spent time with the Panthers and Vikings. That's an overlook at what you may have missed on the gridiron this week. Oh, by the way, the Detroit Lions picked up a new quarterback, Josh Johnson is coming in after a head injury to Tom Savage. You might remember Johnson last year with the Washington Redskins like their number four quarterback. Man, the Lions got to hope Stafford stays healthy. Otherwise, he's backed up by Josh Johnson and Tom Savage. Well, I tell you what, what else you might have missed today? Two professional league schedules were released today. Major League Baseball and NBA for the 2019-2020 season. Major League Baseball's already got their schedule out for next year. Too far away. And NBA starts in two months. This is too close to be learning these matchups. But the schedules are out. And I tell you what, there's a great slate of NBA on Christmas Day. And we're going to have those games for you here on ESPN. Starting at 12 noon, the Boston Celtics visit the defending champion Toronto Raptors. Then at 2.20, the 76ers host the Bucks. 5 o'clock start for Houston at Golden State. Then at 8 o'clock, the battle for L.A., primetime Clippers and Lakers. And they share the same home venue, but it is counted as a home game for the Lakers. And then at 10.30, New Orleans at Denver. What a slate that is, morning to night. About 12 hours or so of basketball. you got a Boston team that's bouncing back from a really disappointing season, taking on the defending champions north of the border. You've got the reigning MVP traveling to Philadelphia, a team that we don't know what they're going to look like yet this year. You've got Houston, who can never seem to get past Golden State, playing each other. Merry Christmas. And then the top two teams, arguably in the league, both in the same city, both in the same arena. LeBron James 
Anthony Davis against Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And then the nightcap, Zion Williamson. That doesn't make for much better of a Christmas broadcast schedule. Well, I tell you what, continuing on with our NFL storylines, what to watch for for the upcoming season, less than 25 days until the season kicks off for real. Are challenges worth the time? Baseball has a problem of slowing down the game. Does the NFL? You wouldn't think so, but are we on a course to get to that point? This year, the NFL is letting coaches challenge when they believe a pass interference call should have been made, but wasn't. This stems from the NFC Championship game in January, where a lot of people feel that the New Orleans Saints were cheated out of a trip to the Super Bowl. So that's why this rule was enacted, and the Saints, poetically, were the first team to implement this new challenge, and they lost. They lost on it the other night. It is just poetry. It is just irony at its finest. So is it worth the time? I tell you what, I had this conversation with the ABC 10 sports guys here on Wednesday. You're not going to get every call. If we slow down every play so that we get it perfect, the game's going to take forever. Then you will have an interest problem. But as long as we are getting the most critical calls in the most critical times, I'm all in favor of it. The Saints should have gone to the Super Bowl last year, and I've been calling that since week eight. I would have looked like Nostra Tanner. Now, I knew what was going on about three months ahead of time, and a mispassed interference call cost me maybe one of the greatest predictions I've ever made in my history of sports journalism. But I tell you what, if we get the most impactful calls and we get them right, then I'm in favor of it. And it's hard to define what is the most impactful. What did the Justice Potter Stewart say one time? I know it when I see it. Of course, he wasn't talking about football when he made that ruling. This is something I'm in favor of that as long as we have the technology, we should be using, implementing, and taking advantage of. New coaches in the NFL. There were eight of them this offseason, and six of them are offensive guys. Five of those six are under 45 years old. Do you see a trend? The NFL is gearing toward young, offensive talent. Not just players, but coaches as well. Maybe the most interesting hire was Cliff Kingsbury, 39-year-old who was fired by Texas Tech in the offseason. He had a 45-52 and 52 record as head coach of the Red Raiders, yet he's such a skilled offensive mind that the Arizona Cardinals wanted to take a chance on him, even after Kingsbury accepted a different job. I actually have a segment coming up on this tomorrow, so I don't want to give too much away, but I believe that there are some coaches you can tell right now are going to work out and some that are going to struggle. We're going to have more on that tomorrow, so I'm going to save it for then. The Dallas Cowboys, can they satisfy their stars? Realistically, no. And I don't know who's at fault. Jake Durant was talking to me about that here on the show last week. Ezekiel Elliott wants more money because he knows at any time his ACL, his MCL, could all just be torn to shreds. And there goes his football career. So he wants to make sure he's financially stable with a record-setting contract. Does Zeke deserve the money is beside the point. He does. But the Dallas Cowboys have a lot of other young talent that's going to be coming up on contract years soon. And that's the curse of drafting well. They're going to have to pay Dak Prescott, Amari Cooper they gave up a first-round pick for, Jalen Smith, Leighton Vanderesh. They have a lot of guys that are going to want money coming up. And in a salary cap league, you have to make choices. you got to be able to balance that money. Zeke might deserve it, but if you want to truly be a good team, you can't afford to give him what he deserves. It's a paradox. So to answer that question in one word, no. Cowboys can't keep all their stars happy. The question is going to be, who are they going to be able to keep on the team? Because some of them are going to get paid elsewhere, and they know it. And i got to be able to keep this group together. The Cowboys are going to have to hope they continue to draft well. They can get guys on rookie contracts who are going to step in and be impactful right away. Is this it for Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota? Is this last call on those two quarterbacks? Is the clock about to strike midnight on their careers? For Winston, absolutely. He's got Bruce Arians as his head coach. If there's any guy who can work with a quarterback and turn him into a success... It's Bruce Arians. He is the quarterback whisperer. If Winston can't make it work with him, he can't make it work in the NFL. This is absolutely the last call for Jameis Winston. Marcus Mariota, he's in a similar situation as Jimmy Garoppolo and Carson Wentz, whereas he's so talented, but he can't stay healthy. Problem is that Mariota's farther along in his career than those other two. And Mariota has a terrible offensive line in front of him, especially when you factor in the fact that Taylor Luan will not be playing for the first four weeks of the season. And those are some huge games he'll be missing. Week one, notably, against the Cleveland Browns. It is for that reason I don't believe that Tennessee is going to make the playoffs this year. They're going to get off to a terrible start they're not going to be able to recover from. They've already got two playoff teams in that division between Houston and Indianapolis. 
Tennessee always seems to sneak in at 9-7. and seven. They get one of those wild card spots. They're going to need to value every game this year. And it's just not going to happen with Mariota not being protected. I don't know that he's even going to play the full season. Wouldn't shock me if he doesn't. It may very well be last call for him as well. Now, I do give him credit they went out and got Ryan Tannehill this offseason. And I know Tannehill's not your ideal quarterback, but I don't believe the reason that Tennessee will miss the playoffs will be because of ineffective quarterback play. I believe it's going to be because they are not allowed to be effective because of a poor offensive line. couple more here. Which second-year quarterback is set to make the biggest stride? Let me clarify that. If we were going second-year starter, we all know the answer to that question. That's Patrick Mahomes. But it's his third year in the NFL, so he's not in this category. The 2018 draft class of quarterbacks. Baker Mayfield, Josh Rosen, Lamar Jackson, Sam Darnold, Josh Allen. Everyone was so high in that quarterback class, never saw why. Never saw why. I think Baker Mayfield's going to pick up where he left off. I think he'll have a great year. He's far and away the best quarterback that came out of that class. I don't know what to expect from Lamar Jackson this year. The jury's still out. I'm leaning towards sophomore slump. But I'm not ready to go full out on a limb on that projection yet. Josh Allen, Sam Darnold, I'm just not expecting a lot from them this year. I do think Josh Rosen could take a big step forward this year. I think Josh Rosen could be that guy. I still think Baker's the best quarterback out of that group. But Rosen, albeit he set the bar low last year, I think is going to have a much better season this year in a new city with Miami. I think if there's any quarterback set to make the biggest jump, be the most improved, I would say it's Rosen. And finally... Will the Patrick Mahomes saga continue? 5,000 yards and 50 touchdowns. That might be unmatchable, especially when he doesn't have the weapons that he did before. But I tell you what, if anyone can do it, it's Patrick Mahomes. I'm high on Patrick Mahomes. I don't think he personally will take a step back this year, but I think the rest of the AFC is getting better. And the Chiefs were hit hard this offseason, not just by loss of personnel, but by some of the activity by certain players on that team. You know what I'm talking about. I don't know what the locker room aura is going to be like around Tariq Hill. I don't know if that's going to bring a bad vibe in the locker room. We all know he's guilty. We all know he did something wrong. But since the league can't prove it, he's back without a suspension. How's the team going to feel about that guy? About being around a guy like that? All that makes me think Mahomes probably will take a small step back numbers-wise this year. I don't know if that's going to be on him, though. I think he'll continue to do his thing, and he'll probably even get better. But because the off-season issues... And the fact the AFC is just getting better as a whole, I don't know that Mahomes can match what he did last season. In fact, I think Christian Yelich is a good comparison to Patrick Mahomes and what I think he'll be this year. Put up similar numbers to last year when he won the MVP race, but his team may not perform like they did the year prior, and that might be what negates another MVP season. I tell you what, with that, we are out of time. I'm back on tomorrow, and it's my hope that you join me. Same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central on ESPN-UP and online with our app. Until then, hope you have a great rest of your Monday. My name's Tanner Hoops. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey, it's the guys. Join us Tuesday. Greg Cody's in studio with us. He's our guest co-host. He's back from vacation. Hopefully that means back in my day is also back from vacation. Plus, we'll talk animals with Ron McGill. That's Tuesday on the Dan Levitard Show with me, Stigatz, on ESPN Radio.